This episode of the Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Father Ned Scheidecker of the Diocese of Helena, Montana, who asks for your prayers as he commences his canon law studies this fall. Good luck, Father Ned. For the great taste that won't fill you up and never lets you down, make it a Scheidecker. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Pillar Podcast, the podcast that brings you great Catholic conversation each week. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, Father Ned Scheidecker. Nope. That's not, that's the guy that sponsored it. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, J.D. Flynn, and I am joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Ed, hello, my friend. Hi, J.D. It's good to talk with you again. It is. It's nice to see you. Hello, Edward Mile. Okay, we're not going to do that, but it is nice to, uh, I was going to sing Sound of Silence, a kind of customized version of Sound of Silence for you. Uh, eh, I, I'll be honest with you, I'm fairly ambivalent about Simon and Garfunkel. Oh, I mean, I, Paul, don't be wrong. Paul Simon, I'm, I, I, I like Paul Simon. I acknowledge his talent as a songwriter. I, yeah, most of the greatest hits of Simon and Garfunkel, though, eh, I could take or leave. Okay, well, I realize the more you know, everybody. But you know, and what do and you listen to while you work? I'm curious. Nothing. Nothing. You don't listen. What do to I music? listen to while I work? You, I focus. Music doesn't help you focus. No, gosh, no. I, I, I hear about people like that. I think my, I gather there are a lot of them, but I don't, I, I don't, um, I don't subscribe to that way of being. I work when I work. I, I don't mind. I like actually probably working in a coffee shop. Like I often like to work in a coffee shop or a diner and just have the yeah, you're sort of that's cl- that's plate crazy. cracking noise behind me. No, that's wrong. Uh, I, I enjoy that a great deal. Or I take a minute and I sort of. Um, eavesdrop on some other conversation then i get back to my work that's perfectly fine for me but as to listening to music while i work i have no no need or interest in that kind of no thing. i i mean i it has to be instrumental music because otherwise my brain will click over this is why i could never this is why i think you're weird for working in coffee shops and things like that i don't understand like other people are so distracting they like the idea that you could hear the sort of burble of other people talking in the background while you're talking like, i would find that just ruinous to my concentration I don't know oh. how you can do that. I, oh, that's how I would feel about music. No, but I mean, I mean, again, usually instrumental music. So it's you know, it's just the the rhythm hits in the back of your head. And actually, I find depending on the tempo of the music, it can actually help me with writing. It sort of, I, I, it has a propulsive effect on me. It's it's very useful. I was actually I was listening I was listening to music this morning, and my wife caught me. What was it? What were you? Uh, I was listening to. Actually, I was listening. Well, it to... felt like you wanted me to ask. I felt like you. No, want... no, it wasn't that. I was going to tell you a no, self-effacing no, no, I... story about how my about how my wife came into the office because apparently she'd been calling me from the other room, and I had the volume turned like right up in my headphones, and so I couldn't hear a thing. And she she caught me sort of um, dancing vigorously in my chair to the music as I was typing, and you know I was having a, I was having a great old time. And I so I you like silly. to listen to like loud pop music while you're working. I don't know if I'd always call it pop music, but yeah, yeah, I like, as I said, I have a preference for instrumental music, so it's often classical. In the case of this morning, it was, um, it was actually pop music. It was, uh, it was Pulp, Pulp's live set at the Reading Festival, and I think it was 2011 or something. And so she came in right in the middle of Common People as the finale, and I was, I was getting a little too into it. Well, that's a fiction. All right, we have things we have to talk about now. That's a what? Some people will see what I've done there. Some people won't. We have things that we need to talk about now because uh, while you were listening to Pulp, Ed, um, the oh, I uh, see. Very good. Uh, while you were listening to Pulp, the uh, members of the College of Cardinals of the uh, of, of our Mother of the Church uh, met together in Rome, both uh, for the elevation or there's no real good um, there's no real good word to describe what happens. The initiation, I suppose, the creation, of, JD, creation. Well, okay, the creation of new members of college, of the College of Cardinals on Saturday, and then two days of meetings in Rome to talk uh, about the needs and life of the church. And uh, the Cardinals had um, two things they want to talk about. So so this this kind of meeting is called a consistory. So the, the Cardinals got together basically on Monday and Tuesday. So Saturday they had the to-do to make the new Cardinals, and uh, then the Cardinals go off and they have ordinarily have a dinner and a reception, and then the next day they ordinarily, the new cardinals ordinarily offer a mass of thanksgiving at a parish somewhere in Rome or some other sacred space in Rome, and their friends and family come, and other members of the college go and can celebrate those masses or sit in choir. 
and uh, and all of that is um, is great. Those are the first two days, but then Monday and Tuesday of this week were the kind of business meeting times of the consistory of the College of Cardinals, and um, the Cardinals wanted to talk about two things. They wanted to talk about the power of governance um, involving laity in the Roman Curia, which I feel like you and I have talked about a lot, and then they wanted to talk about the definition and meaning of, the, uh, of synodality. They had a lot of questions about what synodality is and what it ain't. And uh, I, I guess I'm kind of surprised, Ed, that they're... I, I hear a lot of people saying that they don't understand what synodality is or why they want to talk about it. And I, I, I don't know. I, it seems to me like it, an idea has sort of developed out about what the, whether you endorse the idea or not, whether you think it's used or misused or, or otherwise misunderstood or, or understood. It seems to me that, that there is a, fair, a fairly clear sort of sense of what it is. And in fact, the International Theological Commission in 2018 did a very kind of nice uh document on this notion of synodality in in the life of the church have you seen it before i i have i remember seeing it in 2018 when they came out with it although i haven't seen it much since and i think really jd you're you're betraying um your age here in in referencing a 2018 document on synodality i mean synodality is it's so much more and you, you do such an injustice to it trying to pin it down and suggest suggest that there's a sort of accepted definition i mean this is this is to describe a flower before it has bloomed, as the as as a member of the permanent secretariat of the Synod of Bishops said. Uh, not well, so when the International ago. Theological Commission described a flower before it bloomed, um, they it was pretty clear uh, the way that they talked about it that a synod is an ecclesial assembly uh, convoked on various levels a diocesan synod, a provincial, a regional, a patriarchal, a universal synod to discern by the light of the Word of God and listening to the Holy Spirit. The um, doctrinal, liturgical, canonical, and pastoral questions that arise as time goes by. Now, not every kind of synod uh, is a doctrinal synod. In fact, um, uh, a doctrinal synod is uh, is a particular kind of thing which we talk about as an as an ecumenical council. They have uh, it's a particular kind of synod that talks about the doctrinal doctrinal issues. Um, but you can have other kinds of um, synods, especially synods that aim to focus on pastoral questions, to discern by the light of the Word of God and listening to the Holy Spirit, pastoral the answer to certain pastoral questions or the approach to certain pastoral things that arise as time goes by. That seems to me to be a very kind of a Christian thing that one might do. I suppose. I mean, that that is the traditionalist's <laughs> understanding. I suppose. That's like, that's like from the... From, uh, in a certain way, the Council of Jerusalem among the first apostles was a kind of synod in which the apostles discerned together. Um, well, but case. a synod, I mean, okay, if you're going to be a trad about this, J.D., if you're going to, you know, cite things like actual church documents and the history of the church and, uh, God forbid, the Code of Canon Law, which defines a synod, um, I, I mean, the key marker of a synod is it's always a consultative body. Mm-hmm. And so and because it's a consultative body, it has to be consulting someone. So a synod has to meet under the authority of a con- of the one who in the modern sense a synod is always a consultative body. When when yeah. the term synod and council were used kind of in a conflated way, that wasn't necessarily true. Yes, but now the difference is a council can be a legislative body, and generally speaking, um, a, a collection of equals meeting together in a in a conciliar way. Um, whereas a a synod is very definitely a, a subordinate body to the one who calls it. Um, but again, all of this is you know really retrograde. Uh, you know, the, the, the secretary has been very clear that synodality is, you know, really more of a feeling, J.D. Um, well, I, I it's <laughs> synodality is the gentle ringing in your ears. After, See, these are the uh, kinds of things that I hear people say. These are the kind of caricatures that I hear people say about synodality. It's and, true. I've listened to these speeches. And I've these listened are the kinds to these of things. Whoa, 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 whoa. These are the kinds of things. This is the problem that we have. And this is why I think the Cardinals wanted to talk about what synodality is, is that this is an idea that the Pope has been advancing that has a definitive and deliberative, not only a definitive and deliberative meaning in the life of the church, but also in a rich sort of theological and historical tradition, but sort of recent, you know, doctrinal formulations and clarity about what this thing is. And it, and it's just an, or, it seems to me to be just an ordinary part of the Christian life. Your family needs to make certain decisions about where to, how, how the Lord is leading you. Then you come together and you pray together and you reflect on the Word of God and, and you try to sort of hear the Holy Spirit. That just seems like, to me, an ordinary part of Christian living. Your parish or your movement or your group or whatever wants to know what God wants, you pray together. Um, that's well, what yes. it, that's what this is. But th- it's become sort of this, uh, th- this idea, which I think is both ba- sort of elemental and deliberative, has, uh, has taken on this very nebulous sense. And... Um, 
in the one sense, I get frustrated with that because I see people on social media being sarcastic in the way that you are, and uh, and I and I find that and I find that dispiriting. But then on the other hand, I also hear from, as you point out, you know, people at high levels of leadership positions in the church being as sort of vague uh, about synodality or 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 as um, ephemeral about the thing, and that. No wonder the cardinals don't know what it is. It seems like very few people have done the homework to read the document that talks about what synodality is that came out five years ago. Well, I, I mean, the whole and that's thing... that's irritating to me, Edward. I can understand your irritation, J.D., and I'm sorry that my being ironic earlier was uh, upsetting <laughs> you, but I, I would... Uh, fine, I, I happen to think that those those ways of talking about synodality are absurd, but... Well, the, I do too. That's my the, point, is they the undermine the reality is that it's that not. This is not a question of, you know, sort of... Um, sycophantic lunatics on Twitter who are saying this. This is this is the permanent secretariat of the Synod of Bishops that is promoting right. this line. If anyone right. is supposed to have a, a grasp on what synodality is, it's them. And they're saying it's actually unsynodal to try and define synodality, which is the mm-hmm. dumbest thing I can possibly think that's, of. That's effectively asking people to paint with all the colors of the wind in as much as I can tell. Well, that's how they design their logo as near as I can figure. Um <laughs> But what I was going to say is, the other thing is, you know, you, you cited this document from the ITC on in 2018 on the nature of synodality and everything. But the thing that really irritates me um, about the whole idea of synodality and the synod and synodality and people's way of talking about what synodality is, and it's a new mode of living in the church, and it's, you know, a new way of being church, and all this claptrap, is that Synodality is not new in the church. The Synod of Bishops is not new in the church. The church has been having synods, meetings of the Synod of Bishops, since the Second Vatican Council ended. Paul VI created the permanent secretary of the Synod of Bishops to meet in Rome on a regular basis to keep the the sort of um, dynamic of the period of time that was the Second Vatican Council alive, to keep, the, to keep going with this idea of, well, I should have people coming, bishops coming from all over the world to, to give me the benefit of their opinions and insights on on matters of moment, um, and we've been doing it ever since. I mean, you know, there were there were, believe it or not, synods with equally grinding regularity before the current pontificate. We had them; um, they were lovely, and you know, but for some reason, the under first Cardinal Baldessari and now under um, Cardinal Grec, the people at the Secretariat seem to have got it into their nut that you know. They, they've invented this entire concept and they invented it sometime in the last five years. And I just don't understand how, I mean, I feel like I'm taking crazy pills, JD. It's, you know, and so I, I, I tend to retreat behind irony as a defense against that because it just doesn't make any sense to me how, I, I feel like whenever I see someone sitting at the at the panel table in the Sala Stampa in Vatican City and they are asked to define synodality and they say it is a, it is a crime against synodality to try and define it um, and they use nauseating terminology like it is to try and describe a flower before it is bloomed which is an actual thing that was said at an actual press conference by the synod secretariat um, it feels like a confidence trick to me uh, it, <laughs> it feels like a con and I, it's what the kids I think today are calling gaslighting I feel like they are gaslighting people and trying to convince them that we don't really know what this beautiful, organic, new thing is that we have been doing for 50 years on the regular. Well, we've actually been doing it in various iterations for 2,000 years. And I think, to your point, so so the Cardinals get together and they said, look, we need a more precise definition of synodality. And I think a big part of what they probably meant, or some of them probably meant, is we need a more um, systematic way of talking about this element of the Christian life that should be normalized and and regular. Um, And by that, I don't mean there... what should be normalized and regular is kind of um, a sort of d- deliberative decision-making body of people who are not empowered to make decisions coming together and making decisions. But the notion of praying together to make decisions, praying together to hear the Word of God, is important. The Second Vatican Council emphasized it. That's why they called for a renewal of synods of bishops. Um, but, you know, there's all this data, Ed, that talks about—here's um, why I think this—like, here's why I think there's something important going on with the kind of conversations about synodality and a huge missed opportunity— there are all these statistics about American adults who, who are believers and who regularly attend religious services of one kind or another. And um, much of that data says that most American adults don't regularly, who, who, are, who profess a religious creed, don't regularly pray aloud with others, don't regularly pray aloud with their children, aren't comfortable pr- praying aloud spontaneously, and, um, and 
uh, don't know how to discern the will of God. And, it, you know, there are plenty of Catholics who say that and probably plenty of surveys which say that about Catholics, that the notion of kind of discerning the will of God is foreign to them or sounds Protestant or sounds kooky or something like that. And, uh, and that basically means that the fact of the matter is there are a lot of families, devout families, which have anemic um, prayer lives in which the Holy Spirit is not, in which there's not an awareness of the presence and, and um, movement of the Holy Spirit or an understanding of how to discern the signs of the Spirit and the, and, and the movement of the Holy Spirit and the promptings of the Holy Spirit. And that limits our ability to cooperate with the will of God or to make um, good, I don't want to instrumentalize, but to enter into the living Word of God, which is sacred scripture. And so this idea that emerged in the Second Vatican Council, hey, we really ought to return to this notion in the early church, or we really ought to pick back up on this notion in the early church of, of synods of people coming together to discern the will of God is an important one, and one that is probably needed because of, the, because of that spiritual de- um, deprivation that I just spoke of. And um, so I get frustrated, as you do, when I hear this kind of... Um, just sarcastic, uh, either the sarcastic lollygogging that dismisses the concept or this kind of ephemeral weirdness that purports to describe the concept, um, because both of them, I think, turn people off from a very ordinary, what should be a very ordinary and common idea in the life of the Church, which is um, we come together and pray together and we learn how to listen to the, to, to the voice of the Lord. Sure, but the thing is, and, and this is my point, is and I'm not saying I'm frustrated with you. I'm saying no, I'm frustrated that we're missing this opportunity, and I suspect some cardinals are too. Maybe that's why they're talking about it. Well, I don't know that we are missing the opportunity everywhere. I mean, there are places where they were having synods, and I don't mean the the synod of bishops meeting in all its ways of ordinary and extraordinary sessions, but dioceses were meeting in um, synod. I mean, before the synod in Saladi was convened, before we had this global synodal process, it was yeah. not unknown for a diocese state, we are going to have a diocesan synod or an archdiocese. I mean, um, Minneapolis, Some, somewhere Saint underway. Paul. Sorry, I think the archdiocese of Saint Paul, Paul, Minneapolis, Minneapolis was, I should say. Yeah, I think they had a synod underway at the time that the synod yeah. on synodality was announced. So did the diocese of Dallas, yeah. uh, Tejas, and maybe a couple of others. Right. So I'm saying that what you are describing as being an important way that the church has um, been living a, a particular charism, a way of charism in the church. Um, for its entire history, and there has been a particular emphasis on since the Second Vatican Council, is not something that is you know was otherwise absent um, before we came up with this global idea of a, a synod on synodality and a global synodal process, and and that's kind of what I mean is I I resent the idea that oh well unless there's a top down thing with a you know crayon colored book from the Secretariat, no one would otherwise have ever heard of this or been able to do it when in fact where it has been organic, where it has been places that have recognized the value and the need and the role that authentic synodality can play in the life of the church, the local church. Um, correct me if I'm wrong, but the participation and the and the benefit of it has been rather more marked than it has been in, for example, the some of the synodal reports we've seen coming out from basically across. Yeah. If we speak of the global south, let us say across the global north. Um, yeah. where you've had these ridiculous um, participation rates of 1% or less. Yeah. Which is, you know, I, that's, not a, that's not a synod. That's a, that's, that, that's a meeting. <laughs> well, here's what I'm saying. And I think this is, the, this is where my rant is going. The, the, um, there's the, this idea is out there and it's widely mocked. And, uh, and uh, perhaps that has been brought, perhaps um, various kinds of synodal leaders have brought that upon the idea itself. But... Let's do better, listeners, in this sense. Um, the idea that uh, we ought to be praying together to discern the will of God with the Word of God in front, to discern the will of God with the Word of God in front of us, the idea that we ought to know how to do that, how to listen for the voice of the Holy Spirit and respond to it, um, the idea that we ought to come together in some prayer and, 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 and even engage with one another in vocal, spontaneous prayers, we discern the will of God. Those should be normal in the Christian life. So let's take synod back. I think this is my thing. Let's take synod back from the connotations that people have of, of a sort of bureaucratized, sort of Potemkin, exercise in Potemkin consultation. Let's take it back by having um, um, p- uh, parish synods and family synods and movement synods. And if you live in a dorm dorm room synods, I mean, let's just invite people. Let's like, let's rebuke the bureaucratized notion of synodality that is so often criticized by, um, by just um, 
taking up the sense which is embodied in that 2018 thing and just becoming more intentional about praying together with the Word of God in order to discern the will of God, both for individuals and in a, in a corporate sense. Is that, how, what do you think, Ed? Is it okay that that's my hope? That, that I, I, that as has long been as you're not going to try and talk me to an office synodal process. No, 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 no. That has been latently my hope maybe for the whole of this thing is like, oh, wow, people coming together to pray together can This only is why be you want everyone to come out to Denver for a, a week or a weekend, isn't it? Of our, everyone who works with us to come yeah. out? Oh, you, you're a little concerned that I want us all to pray together? I do want us all to no, pray together. No, th- but that's what I mean, is you you were telling us, you know, we all just need to be, we need to get some work done, we've got some important stuff we've got to, you know, hash out, we've got to, you know, stuff with the new website and everything. You're planning a synod, aren't you? You're planning an <laughs> office synod. That's what's going on here. <laughs> the synod on pillardality. Um, if you'd like to come to the synod on pillardality, just become, <laughs> just join the 1K club or some other high tier subscription. Oh, no, I'm just I, totally kidding. I'm not going to simonize. Look how I was about to I say, can you simonize a synod? <laughs> can you simonize a synod? And if yes. you can't, then you can uh, monetize it. And now I'm suddenly <laughs> interested in the process. For goodness sake. Um, I just, uh, I just, I, I think this is why I was optimistic about the thing from the beginning is this idea, oh, maybe people will come together and, uh, and pray together. And thanks be to God for that. And it has become... Uh, many things, and we'll talk more about that, but m- marked by low participation rates. In some places, some parts of the world, there have been high participation rates and a great deal of support, but in other places, people have never heard of it, you know, and and and, and people I know um, tried to participate in the synod on synodality in their parish or diocese and couldn't even, couldn't figure out how to do it. Smart people, you know, uh, tried to figure out how to do it and couldn't figure out how to do it. So, um, but, but uh, I think it's been my hope that the thing itself would catalyze a sort of greater desire to come together with one another and pray. And to the extent that maybe that hasn't been the response to much of the sort of, if you will, the institutional synod, perhaps there might be an organic renewal of, of ecclesiastical synodality that happens almost by providence in spite of the the, the other thing. I don't well, know. I mean, it's an interesting, what is it, getting back to sort of what we started off talking about, it, it is interesting. I mean, one of the true purposes of, or one of the true characteristics of a consistory of the College of Cardinals is it should be a synodal event. I mean, properly speaking, that it is a body, it is a consultative body convoked by a proper authority to discuss the pressing practical and pastoral um, issues facing the Holy Father and the, his governance of the Universal Church. So, I mean, in a sense, the consistory is an authentic synod in that in that way. Um, yeah. and and so it's it's nice that they they had one. I mean, I do you want to feel old? For a minute? Uh, sure. Do you remember the last time there was a full-on consistory? No. Do you care to guess what year it was? No. 2014. 2014 was the last full consistory. But, I mean, to give you an idea of how much has changed and how, how much church news there has been since the last consistory, the last time the College of Cardinals met in consistory... The, the leader of the main session was Cardinal Casper, and, and that was a big deal. Everyone was very, was very um, exercised about the, the out-there, bleeding-edge, progressive Cardinal Walter Casper chairing yeah, <laughs> consistory right. session. And if you had Cardinal Casper chairing a consistory or synodal session these days, it would, they'd probably say... <laughs> You know, arch-conservative Walter Casper. Well, Cardinal Casper has been warning the—yeah, I mean, Cardinal Casper, funnily enough, has been warning the German synodal path to knock it off now for quite some time and saying, this is—these uh, are very many very real problems here, and I do not wish to sound like a conservative, but oh my goodness. So yeah, I think there—yes, uh, I think that is a—that is a thing, Ed. That is a thing, and it has been since 2014. But—and um, and maybe some places—I don't want to sell every place short. Maybe some places, some diocesan synods and parish synods, bishops who are listening and pastors who are listening, maybe you experienced your synods as real, authentic periods of coming together to pray together. Oh, but I, I think hope there were— I mean, I have heard from people who had, you know, really good parochial synodal sessions, stuff like that. I think it's, I mean, this is always the problem with with things like this is the further away you get from the basic level, um, the harder it is to maintain uh, uh, the same spirit, I think we can say. Yeah, yeah. Okay, um, but anyway, I, I I hope that there might be some desire or inspiration for whatever becomes of the synod, for it also to become an opportunity in parishes and elsewhere for real intentional spiritual formation about 
understanding the promptings of the Holy Spirit and how to respond to them and discernment of those the discernment of spirit and discernment of the presence and will of the Holy Spirit and things like that. Because if we don't know how to pray, what are we doing really, right? Uh you're not wrong. I'm I I have to I have to pray spontaneously many times during the day. It is about the only way to get through. You uh No, that was a comment with an irony. I was being qu- sincere. Quoth there. I know, but I'm just, you know, quoth um Quoth MC Hammer himself, you got to pray um, just to make it today. Yes. Yes, JD. Yes. But let's talk about another thing that is happening connected to the global synod on synodality uh, that is a little bit less um, high-minded. Um, we have, uh, if, you, uh, if, you ex- if you pay attention to these sort of things, you may have noticed that over the past several months, the Pontifical Academy for Life... Have we talked about the Pontifical Academy for Life here on this show before? I don't remember. I feel like we... I feel like we talked about it when they had their kind of Twitter meltdown about a month ago. I, I don't remember if we talked about it after that or in, a, in another context to that. I'd like to talk about it more, but before we do that, Ed, I just realized that it is time for a word from our sponsor. We'll be right back. Ed, S-H, uh, this... hang on. Let me just make sure I'm not mispronouncing it. S-H-E-I-D-E-C-K-E-R. S-C-H-E-I-D-E-C-E-R. S-C-H-E-I-D-E-C-E-R. Everybody, this episode of The Pillar Podcast is brought to you by Father Ned Scheidecker of... Ed, where's where's he from? Where's our sponsor? The Diocese of Helena, Montana. From the Diocese of Helena, Montana. To learn more about Father Ned Scheidecker, check out the Diocese of Helena, I suppose. I really don't know what else no, to tell you, but he is our sponsor. No, he's going to study canon law, Father Ned friend of the show dear friend father of the ned show. friend of the show good good friend of the show good man dear friend of the show is embarking ned ned the head needle nose ned you, you get the idea that'll be fair i mean that is a groundhog reference for anyone who doesn't know we're not we're not yeah i hope father ned knew that i was just, i'm yeah. sure he does but anyway no um father ned is on his way to study canon law the blessed and most sacred of the sciences and uh we wish him extremely well in his endeavors i'm sure he's gonna make a great canonist um it's you know it is the best thing to study. So there's that. That's great. And he's from Montana. What's not to like about that? Um, mm-hmm. You know, as Norman McLean wrote, JD, the world is in fact full of bastards, the number increasing rapidly the further one gets from Montana. And uh, Father Father Ned Scheidecker is a graduate, I believe, of uh, St. John Vianney Theological Seminary here in Denver, Colorado. And um, was ordained a deacon in 2018 and a priest of Jesus Christ in 2019. And now, as you know, he is heading to canon law studies. So fathers, if you have uh, an unspoken for mass intention uh, coming up, offer a mass for Father Ned. And um, those of you who don't offer the holy sacrifice of the mass like me, let's all just pray for Father Ned, sponsor of this episode of the Pillar Podcast. Okay, Ed, we are back, and a special shout out to friend of the show, Father Ned Scheidecker. Um, but uh, we uh, we are back, and um, we would. By the way, he that Father Ned was a, is a real advertiser with the Pillar Podcast. I I mean, I just think this is awesome, Father Ned Scheidecker, the sponsor of this week's episode of the Pillar Podcast. I'm not talking about him right now. I'm talking about the show. I guess is a real sponsor of the Pillar Podcast. He reached out to us. He said that he would appreciate prayers as he goes off to study canon law, and he asked to sponsor an episode of the show. And the point that I'm really making here is, uh, one, Father Ned, great guy, talked about that during the break. But two, if you covet the prayers of pillar listeners all around... No, that's simony, isn't it? Yeah, stop trying okay. to sell prayers. No, I don't want to do that. But if you would like... If you're interested in sponsoring an episode of this show for whatever reason... Um, you're welcome to do so, as did our friend Father Ned, and I just think that's pretty cool, and we will work hard to get you into a, schedule, a scheduled episode of this show. Is that right, Ed? I mean, you know you know the Ned, Nedster. I, I do know Father Ned, and he's been waiting patiently for some time for, for his thought on this, and I thank him for his patience and for all of his prayers for everything that we're doing. He's a great guy, and... Um... I'm. I mean, I am. I am genuinely excited that he's going to study canon law. I. But usually, I. I end up encouraging almost every priest with whom I am friends to go and study canon law. It's nice when one of them does it. I think it's great. Um, it's fun. It's fun that we're, we're on the Father Ned show this week. I think it's great. Yeah, I think that's. Uh, I think that's really fun, as well. Okay, 
So uh, what we are going to talk about now is something kind of related to the Synod on Synodality. If you follow this show, you've heard us talk before, I believe, about the Pontifical Academy for Life. Or if you follow Catholic News at PillarCatholic.com, you've probably seen us write a little bit of something about the Pontifical Academy for Life. The Pontifical Academy for Life is a kind of ecclesiastical—I mean, I, I don't know if it's right to say an ecclesiastical think tank. I don't know if that exactly captures the spirit of the thing, but it is something— like that, it is a kind of a. It, it, go ahead here. You, you I th- no, like I think think tank is perfectly correct. I, I, I think that's exactly the way to characterize it. I, it, you know, it holds events, it puts out books and papers, and um, and what know, has I, it been up to lately, Ed? It fosters thought. Well, uh, <laughs> its most recent publication, I believe, um, which has caused no little controversy, uh, and. It continues to cause no little controversy. Is it published? It, it had a conference last year, I believe, last autumn, and they published basically the proceedings, the, the you know what what people said in their various interventions and speeches and so on at, at this conference. And in the introduction to this text, publishing all of his various contributions to this conference, the um, the president of the academy, uh, Archbishop Pallia, made clear that he he saw the Academy's role at this time and the reason he was so happy to see this work be published was he sees it as their job to usher in a paradigm shift. A paradigm shift on the church's sexual and medical morality as pertains to sexuality? Yes. Um, and and the ways in which he has been indicating, or the Academy itself has been indicating that they want to see this paradigm shift uh, continue has alarmed a lot of people. It, they, for one reason or another, the the sort of official media office of of the academy has has made it its mission to to seemingly charge around the internet and social media and stress over and over again to anyone who will listen and several people who won't that it's their opinion that humani vitae contains no infallible teaching and can be reformed and developed. Uh, it it has alarmed a lot of people, and of course, Archbishop Pallia, um got himself back in the news. At the end of last week, the president of the Pontifical Academy yeah, for Life got himself back in the news this time last week when he uh, he was giving an interview to uh, to an Italian media outlet and and described the law, uh, the Italian civil law legalizing abortion as a pillar of their <laughs> of their legal system. Um, this, I think, reasonably uh, raised some eyebrows. Some people found it hard to construe the the phrase to describe a law as a, as a pillar of their uh, of their legal system as anything other than sort of praiseworthy but the, the academy sort of tried to tried to walk it back tried to reinterpret it and say no he was just saying that it's you know it's there it's not up for debate no one really considers this uh, you know, to be a to weigh in political campaigning or, or elections or whatever which I find bizarre if even the Pontifical Academy for Life, if even the president of the Pontifical Academy for Life doesn't think that life is a live, legal, and political issue in the civil sphere, I'm not really sure what they're doing. Um, but that was how they, that that was the line they went with. But of course, this is, you know, again, this is all part and parcel, I guess, of the, of the paradigm shift that the Academy sees itself as ushering in. Uh, I, I don't get it myself, um, but of course, you know, we have been talking to people at and around um, the Academy's thinking. On and we've been trying to understand it. What's the Academy yeah. doing here with all of this stuff on Humana Vitae, especially? The, 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 the pillar thing, the pillar of law, Italian law thing seemed to me to be, I mean, just probably just a gaffe. Probably what he meant was we don't think that abortion law is going away anytime soon. And, and just that we see that as reality. I don't think that, I think much could be made of that to say, oh, he, he's not pro-life or something like that. But I think probably... It was was not a very thoughtful way of saying um, there is not very much of a live prospect of abortion being outlawed in Italy at the moment. That's what I think. That's what it seems to me that he was trying to get at, for, for better or worse. But the Humana Vitae stuff, um, we've been just trying to understand, like, what? why is the Academy sort of seemingly doubling and tripling down on things which seem to call into question the teachings of Humana Vitae about, um, about sex and contraception? Yeah, I mean, and, and it is... What are we learning? Well... What I keep, you keep handing the ball back to me on this, and I feel slightly guilty because you're the one who did most of the legwork on this. So I, I was did trying most of the legwork on this, and that's fine. I did most of the legwork on this, and that's fine. But I'm trying. Normally, to take I'm the happy lowers. to take the credit for sort of you know 
Vatican, you know, doing Vatican secret agency stuff. And yeah, Federated but I've been doing this. this I've been doing this. this I've been having yours. very many conversations with many, yeah. very many friends, and um, uh, I, I have been, um, yeah, I've been having very many uh, questions with conversations with very many friends who are connected in one way or another to the Pontifical Academy for life, and who are um, connected in one way or another to um, the. Pontifical, well, not really connected, but who are sort of in the circle of the Pontifical Institute of the John Paul II, or otherwise engaged in these kind of theological conversations in Rome, and um, you know, just talking to people in Rome, which is a lot of, as you know, being on the phone at weird times and things like that. But the um, I was trying to give it to you, Ed, because I'm, I'm trying not to dominate the. Sometimes I feel like I talk too much on the show, oh, um, um, and I'm trying to be sensitive to that. Well, that's kind of you, but I. Well, I, I've got the floor now. You do. <laughs> just kidding. Um, we're, we've been talking to a lot of people who say, look, it seems to us that what's happening here is that there is um, a, a kind of developed project where uh, folks at the Pontifical Academy for Life and po- folks at the sort of revised Pontifical Institute of John Paul II, which was whose faculty was dismissed a couple of years ago and replaced, um, and there was a new emphasis, the, the, there was an officially promulgated new emphasis of, at the Pontifical Academy from theology to sort of sociology and social sciences, um, People have been saying, look, it seems that there are a number of people who have were put into influential positions in those um, in those offices in the, in those places several years ago who are now coordinating to sort of generate a discussion about whether or not doctrine on on um, on sex and marriage can you know quote unquote develop whether or not um, that the church can insert into the way that she articulates her the the ter- her teaching on um, the meaning of sex itself, the purpose of sex in the context of marriage, the procreative nature of sex, um, whether or not she can insert a greater concession to the idea that some people might discern in conscience that for various reasons the, they ought to use um, uh, means of contraception in the context of the nuptial act. Um, and that the purpose of that, the timing for that, so it's like, why is this happening now? Those guys have been in their job for a few years. Many of them have been critics of Humana Vitae for years and years and years. Why is it happening now that there's like this coalescing of, um, of, of criticism of Humana Vitae, which is not only academic at the Pontifical Academy for, uh, of John Paul II, but also um, sort of institutional at the Pontifical Academy for Life. And, uh, and, and a lot of our friends in Rome say, look, it seems that what's happening is there's an attempt to generate a conversation that will anticipate the 2023 sort of bishops element of the Synod on Synodality, the 2023 me- October 2023 meeting of bishops, in order to insert into the conversation there an urging or an emphasis to kind of recognize that people might discern in conscience not to, or, or that, that it would be appropriate for them to use contraception in the context of their marriage. And the hope is that they would do that. And that that would, uh, and when the Pope writes up his sort of summary of the thing, his apostolic exhortation, which, which um, follows the synod, he might in a footnote, um, acknowledge that there has been this conversation in such a way that seems to open the door, um, for, uh, the discernment of conscience in in uh, with regard to sexual morality. Now these guys say, look, the church's teaching on sexual morality can't reverse itself. The church suddenly can't say, can't and won't say in an official way, um, using contraception is fine because that sort of completely actually rejects our entire anthropology and to say nothing of the fact that exercises of the church's teaching authority have been exercised. But they say that's not the aim. The aim is instead to generate a certain degree of sort of speculative confusion about the thing among people who are critics of Humana Vitae and to, to see if there can't be some prospect of the Pope sort of acknowledging that speculative confusion. Now, maybe you think that all sounds like conspiracy theory or something like that, but these are serious Vatican people who we're talking to who say this is what we see unfolding, that the reason why this conversation is happening right now is because there is a desire to see this kind of promotion of this idea that um, se- sexual ma- morality can be mitigated by discernments of conscience, sort of taken up in one way or another by the Synod. Now, can sexual morality be mitigated by conscience? Um, uh, no, there you cannot discern in conscience to do in a moral act, and um, the Church's teaching on the nature of sexuality and the irreconcilability of contraception with the sexual act is very, very, very clear. Um, and actually, our ecclesiology is such that I don't think we can believe that the Pope could definitively and authoritatively teach otherwise. I think what well, these no, folks we, are we can't. Is, we we have. Um, I mean, this is one of the things that the Pontifical Academy's media department decided to put out and make a big thing on, and sort of make it a quasi-hail to die on, is to say, um, "Humanae Vitae" isn't an infallible teaching. You know that you that's know, what they're claiming. right? Yeah. Well, that Paul the Sixth. Um, you know, didn't invoke papal infallibility in 
um, in issuing Humanae Vitae. And, and we did write something about this a couple of weeks ago when this happened and said, you know, that, that is both simultaneously true and completely irrelevant because, um, yeah, Paul VI didn't invoke papal infallibility when he promulgated Humanae Vitae, but that's because he was merely explaining what the church holds and has always held to be the natural law and papal infallibility is invoked for defining um, usually dogmatic issues, new issues of, you know, theological understanding, things like that, things like the, the, the assumption of our lady, the immaculate conception, things like that. Um, but that not, not non-use of sort of the infallibility formula doesn't mean that a thing, a doctrinal thing is not true and to be held definitively by us. It, not only that, it, it also doesn't mean that it's therefore, available for change right uh, exactly. you know we the church has no the church has no authority to change natural law the church doesn't claim for itself any authority to contradict or change or relativize or minimize natural law we don't we, we just say that is natural law is in the in the mind of the church in the in the sort of if you like hierarchy of law that the church recognizes um, natural law is a species of divine law that you know it is it is to to try and um, overturn Natural law is to say, well, we are trying to overturn divine law. We are trying to say God's wrong, and we don't. The church doesn't do that. Um, but, but again, as you were saying, that's not the point here. The point here is to try and um, generate confusion around it, and to and to create a space um, for for conversation, and then for um, dissent, in the hope of you know achieving some sort of uh, acknowledgement that you know we might recognize. Um, a good and holy ideal, but that you know, no one no one is bound to an ideal because ideals are by their nature impossible and sort of you know divorced from the messy reality of individual here come circumstances and all of this sort of nonsense. Um, and maybe maybe they think that if they get enough conversation about this around and eventually in the final meeting of the synod in October next year, and and I have no reason to doubt that they will. Um, Again, I mean, at this point, this is a sort of theories offered it by many people. It is sort of a theory, but I mean, in, in terms of the, I mean, I, I'm not going to try and guess what Pope Francis is going to do because it's a mugs game trying to, you know, right. trying to, you know, pin him down and say, I know exactly how he's going to react. We don't. It's you know, Pope Francis. But is, you can see an unfolding momentum. Yes. But it's a funny thing. You can see an unfolding momentum institutionally and academically from the JP two, and from the Pontifical sure. Academy for Life. You don't see a sort of global consensus of theologians picking this up, and the bishops who you hear picking up to say, "Well, we need to rethink the Church's sexual morality," have a much broader thing in mind because usually they're talking about a much broader idea about we need to th- rethink the Church's sexual morality. But I think the but, idea is to but pick that up. But they're linked. They are that's linked. the right. thing. That's is, what I'm saying. You, is you, this is the, the sort of the the uh, the. Or it seems, at least to us, that these things are linked. No, they are linked. I mean, whether they're linked intentionally, I would say as, as subjects, they are linked. They, oh, we, oh, I see. Yes. You can't. You the, that, for example, you have the German um, synodal way has made it a an absolute policy plank, for lack of a better word, um, that the church's teaching on sexuality needs to be completely revised. And for example, they have demanded and i'm not it's not i'm not being i'm not editorializing there they have demanded that the church bless same-sex unions for example and you, we had this situation earlier this year where um the the german bishops basically floated the idea to the vatican and said well we would like to bless same-sex unions we think it's a great idea and the cdf said no um you can't you can't do that uh and the german bishop said well we understand that you're saying no right now um, but we're going to keep talking about this in our synodal way, and uh, you know we'll get back to you. Uh, and and this wasn't enough for a lot of the priests in different German dioceses who basically mutinied, not just against the CDF but against their own bishops, and said, "Well, we're going to have a day of protest." And they they held blessings in churches for several hundred same-sex couples um, on, on a given day last spring. So that agenda that that is percolating up through the synodal process in different parts of the world, in Germany, in Liechtenstein, um, places like that, that will be discussed at the synod. But you, the thing is, you can't find a coherent way of talking about that in the context of church teaching unless you get the humani vitae conversation that the Pontifical Academy for Life seems to be pushing. Because what's necessary is to facilitate a discussion about, for example, the blessing of same-sex unions, you have to first get the crack in the door, which is to say, well, yeah, the church can recognize some sort of uh, 
more can morally relativize somehow the the separation of the unitive and procreative in the sexual act. Once you once you've got that, then you can. And th- I mean, this is exactly what happened in the Anglican Communion. That you know this. Um, you know, there was a, if you like, a, the the whole thing started at the beginning of the 20th century, really, with the first half of the 20th century, with a conversation about artificial contraception. And as soon as there was a theological rationale proposed and accepted for the separation of the unitive and procreative in the sexual act, then, you know, the, the direction of travel was set. Because there's, there is no coherent argument against, for example, the blessing of same-sex unions, once you've taken that leap. Yeah, and the other element of the sort of relativation thing, or the other sort of argument, the other direction made is to, again, to suggest, and once you get this crack in the door, you can go in all kinds of ways, to suggest that there's some disparity between um, uh, between sort of an ideal and acceptable moral behavior, that the conscience can, that a legitimate discernment of conscience can lead a person to choose something other than um, what is true, right? That that there's a there's sort of gradations of morality, and the conscience might urge someone to do something which is immoral. Now there can be a development of the conscience, right? So the conscience can develop such that I become aware. Okay, this thing, bad thing that I'm doing is not only hurting myself, it's hurting others, and so I need to change the way I do it. And gradually, I move from there until uh, to I need to reject this altogether. But the the church can't say like, well, a person can discern in conscience you know, that they are supposed to remain indefinitely in this state, which is at odds with, um, without, with, which is at odds with what is true, right? So right. Um, I can't sort of discern that, okay, now we should start, um, I, I can't sort of discern like, okay, in our marriage, now we should start using contraception because we have all the struggles that a marriage has or, or whatever else. Like, um, that's not a discernment in a legitimate discernment in conscience. But once you make the crack in the door, that indeed a person can discern that there are legitimate reasons to sort of um, uh, do something objectively morally choose wrong. something objectively morally wrong in a in a in a you know not as a development of the conscience as a, as a, as a, as a tool of discernment, but sort of as a, in a developed conscience in a well formed conscience. There's a problem, right? And and once you get there, you can you can justify all kinds of things. So these things are extremely problematic. Now we do, I mean, sincerely believe, or extremely at odds with the teachings of the church. We do sincerely believe that the church can't, um, you know, magisterially teach things which are at odds with a deposit of faith, right? I mean, we we believe that um, that the church has certain a certain charism of inerrancy when it comes to her official teachings on faith and morals. But that doesn't mean that there can't be that efforts to um, water down their expression, dilute or confuse their expression, can't be successful in sort of pragmatic ways. And it also doesn't mean that those things can't come with profound ecclesiological consequences. So do I think that if the Pontifical Academy for Life kind of pushes hard to say, well, in conscience, a person could use contraception, it's going to like move the needle for a lot of people? No, I think people use contraception if they choose to use contraception, or those who don't choose to use contraception are not going to be sort of deceived by because they read this thing at the Pontifical Academy for Life. But do I think that there can be that the church's moral witness and the church's authority is diminished when the, a, a, a robust articulation of her teachings is replaced with something muddled. A- absolutely. And do I think that there can be profound sort of ecclesiastical consequences? For sure, because if that seems to be the case, then there will be an extraordinary amount of division between those bishops who would urge a full-throated articulation of the church's good news about sexuality and those who would um, endorse something which seems to be more muddled or muted. And that, you know, that's the kind of thing from which real and lasting division um, is born. And, um, and and indeed, you know, it is at least plausible as we look at what's happening with the Pontifical Academy for Life that we will see some of that kind of flare up. I, again, I don't want to be, I don't want to be uh, hyperbolic, but I do want to be bolic, which is to say, I do want to, um, <laughs> I do want to be realistic and say, this is something to watch. And when we yeah. see what's in the Instrumentum Laboris, the sort of first pass at the Synod document that should come out in a couple of months, we'll have a sense of the degree to which this kind of stuff will be, uh, will be um, operative in there. I, I, that is exactly right. But, and I think you are right. We will see it in the Instrumentum Laboris. And, and we're I, going to be bolic about it. Uh, yeah. All right, Ed. Uh, I was going to, I, um, it's Labor Day weekend. What are your plans? <laughs> uh, oh, gosh. Um, Labor Day weekend, what are my plans? On Sunday, it is the first Sunday of the month. So I um, I help lead a, a, um, a Bible study and holy hour uh, adoration um, with Solemn Vespers for uh, college kids. So I'll That's be doing right. that on Sunday. 
That's right. I'm assuming we're working on Monday because... Yeah, I'm assuming we're working on Monday. We're not so in So what are my Labor Day plans? I, I have none. None whatsoever. Okay. Fair I'm going to mow my lawn tomorrow. <laughs> Fair enough. Great. How about you? Are you going to do anything? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sometimes I ask you a question and wait to see if you'll reciprocate. <laughs> uh, uh, well, just uh, tell me. If you're doing something interesting, I'd much rather you just no, tell me. No, I'm not. I'm not. But, you know, it's just what you do around the water cooler or whatever. What are you What are you doing? Oh, I don't know what are you doing. It's just a, it's just a give and take, you know. No, I... Uh, no. Sunday is the beatification of John Paul the First, which is a thing that... Uh, will happen and uh and may blessed john paul the first pray for us i know very little about john paul the first but what i do know i have read at the pillar and i definitely will wasn't up and, murdered maybe well there's a i will post a very interesting story at the pillar about john paul the first i will i will sort of bring it up from our archives to the top just as soon as we finish this podcast but i know a very so i will learn more about john paul the one it i think we'll have a good uh weekend this is the last weekend for the pool so i think we're gonna head to the pool and um i was supposed to be getting ready for a big trip but my big trip uh a big reporting trip actually but my big trip has come to um uh it's has come, come to an end prematurely come across which i will talk about more next week you know i we got a pool i membership. like to leave a cliffhanger that's fair i you know we got a pool membership this summer um because dc is a fetid swamp and we found the local Knights of Columbus pool and everything, and we joined. And uh, do you know we haven't been once? Oh, the entire summer, like oh. to to the point where I still have. I it is September second, and I have still not picked up the passes for the for the summer season at this pool. I feel like such a mug, and it's not. I mean, it's not their fault. It it, it ended up that you know, as as anyone who has been listening to this podcast over the summer knows, I've just not been in the city in which I live for most of the summer for great periods of it. So we just never got around to going. So that's fine. Well, it's not too late. This is probably the last weekend for the pool. You have some time on Saturday. I don't. Uh, this episode of the Pillar Podcast was brought to you by Scheidecker's Ned's, our friend Father Ned Scheidecker and his canonical studies. And we'll be back next week. The Pillar Podcast is a production of Pillar Media and Ed and JD Production. I'm your host and Pillar Editor-in-Chief, JD Flynn. I'm joined by my podcasting partner and Pillar co-founder, Ed Condon. Hasta luego. Father Ned is really a good guy. Yeah, Father Ned's awesome.